Thank you, Steve. Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service, so uh, we'll get our Bibles out and open them. We're going to start off in the book of Acts today, but first we'll start with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open our Bibles, we know we cannot have understanding just of our own. It takes your revelation to help us. So we pray that you send the Holy Spirit here in a powerful way to help us not only be able to read, but to understand, not just in a, in a head way, but also in a heart way. We pray through these words you'll change us today, Lord. We want to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So help us to see the light and help us to understand and grow. Thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in the past years, we kind of go through the Christian calendar uh, as we study God's Word. And just a couple weeks ago, we studied Pentecost because it was the Feast of Pentecost. And a lot of times we just kind of end the story there with regard to the church. But I wanted to carry it a little bit further today. And uh, we're talking about the New Covenant Church shortly after Pentecost and what happened. And the title of the sermon today is The First Miracle of the Church. The First Miracle of the Church. So we're in Acts chapter 3, and we're reading the account here of a great miracle that took place. So Pentecost had just happened. God sent the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to the church, and now in a powerful way, the church is kind of breaking out uh, we know that there were 3,000 people baptized on that first day of Pentecost. So here's this group now going out and starting to preach the gospel. And we read a wonderful, inspiring story here of what happened. Acts 3, beginning in verse 1. One day, Peter and John, don't forget they were two of the leading apostles under Jesus Christ. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Each temple gate had a different name. This one was called the Beautiful Gate, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly... The man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping <laughs> and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So we get the, the, the gist of this story and this wonderful 
first miracle created or performed by the apostles rather under the direct supervision and strength of Jesus Christ remember Jesus said I have to depart if I don't depart I can't send you the Holy Spirit and in fact you're gonna end up doing greater things than I've been able to do through my three and a half year ministry and here we see the first example of that being fulfilled now Right on the heels of this great miracle that took place, Peter, who, again, don't forget, is kind of the lead apostle, he stands forth and he gives a sermon, if you will, to the assembled crowd around them there at the temple. And he says some very powerful things. He says this in verse 11. Well, let's read. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them. So get the picture. Here's Peter standing here. John is probably at his side. And this other man who has just been healed and is walking for the first time ever in his life, he's standing there holding on to Peter too. He's thrilled. He's amazed. You know, he doesn't know what to feel because he has been blessed by God to be able to walk. And notice this man didn't need any kind of therapy. You would imagine to have never have, have walked in your life, you can imagine that your, the muscles of your legs were all weak and they couldn't even support you or, or his feet, the tendons, the muscles and everything. He didn't have to go through a period of therapy immediately. He had the strength in his legs and he had the ability to walk. So I was thinking about what it would be like to experience that for the first time. First of all, he didn't want to let go of Peter because Peter was the one who did it. And you can imagine this guy, as Peter was talking, he was standing at Peter's side, just feeling what it's like to stand or to jump. And he, you know, I would think he's constantly moving as Peter's talking here because this man's experiencing something tremendous in his life. So, and he's also standing here as living proof of what was just performed by God. A great miracle, an astonishing miracle. So, when Peter saw this, he said to them, verse 12, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Verse 13, now, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, so he wants to make a connection with them right from the start. So he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three of the greatest patriarchs of the Jewish people. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. It happened just a little while ago, a few months ago. And you disowned him before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. Remember the story of Barabbas, who was let go. You know, the uh, Pontius Pilate wanted to release Jesus because he couldn't find any fault in him. But the crowd demanded that they release Barabbas and kill, crucify Jesus. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. In other words, he's saying, we saw this with our own eyes. 
we know that it happened. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. So notice Peter, wow, this took a lot of courage to get up in front of this group of people, non-believers, and preach the gospel. And notice Peter's message is all about Jesus Christ. It's not about themselves. You know, they, they performed this miracle. They were the instruments through whom God worked, but it was all Jesus Christ doing the work, performing the miracle, giving this man the ability to walk. So notice, he talks here about faith. He says, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, we know that faith is important when it comes to healing. You know, one of the things that, that we pray about every week at services, as Jen just led us in intercessory prayer, we pray for healing. Probably we should also pray, kind of in a general way, that each person that we pray for has the faith that they need to believe in God and to depend on Him. Because faith is important when it comes to healing. Whose faith? Well, you know what? It was the faith of the man who was healed. And how did he demonstrate that faith? You know, he came to the temple that day to beg, and he didn't know that he was going to be healed. And I don't know for sure how deeply he believed in Jesus Christ or even knew who Jesus Christ was. So how did that man express faith to be healed? In a very simple way. When Peter held out his hand to him, this man responded by reaching out his hand and taking Peter's hand and letting Peter help him stand up. That's about all there was to his expression of faith. Peter didn't ask him, now do you believe in Jesus Christ that he is the son of... No. In fact, Peter didn't even pray for him. Peter didn't even anoint him with oil. All Peter did was reach out his hand. And this man expressed his faith by reaching out his hand and taking Peter's hand and allowing Peter to lift him up. That's not hard, is it? I think sometimes we have the wrong idea of faith. Faith can be something very simple in God's eyes. And unfortunately, over the years, you know, I have experienced people, Christians, judge one another and judge their faith. And I remember hearing people say, and I was very sorry to hear them say that, speaking to a fellow Christian, well, you know, the reason that you have this physical problem, this health problem, and it hasn't been healed by God, is that you just don't have strong enough faith. Who are we to say that to a fellow Christian? <laughs> we should never judge another person's faith or condemn their faith. We need to work on ourselves and ask ourselves the question, how is my faith? Okay, Because God didn't require very much faith on the part of this man who couldn't walk. All he did was reach up and take Peter's hand. There was no theology involved in it. 
There was no, uh, you know, standing up and giving testimony of his faith. It was just very simple, and God acknowledged that, and God responded to that. So faith, we let God do the judging when it comes to faith. We don't judge one another. In, so, in many cases, God doesn't expect a whole lot of faith on the part of a person. And here this man was healed through a very dramatic miracle. And I think it also took faith on the part of Peter. Because Peter went to this man and reached out his hand to him, believing that God was going to heal him. Because how embarrassing would that have been had Peter taken this man's hand and tried to help him up, and what if he still couldn't walk? Wow, how embarrassing, how awkward that would have been. So Peter had faith, too, that when he reached out to this man to help him up, that God was going to respond by providing a miracle. So faith was required really on both parts. And you know, another thing to consider, too, is that in this verse, it says that faith comes through Jesus Christ. So Jesus gives us the faith that we need. Faith is a gift that we are given when we become Christians. Now, certainly that faith should grow and develop as we mature as Christians, but even the faith itself that we need comes from Jesus Christ. He provides all that we need. So two things were needed here. Jesus' power to perform the miracle and men's faith. The faith of the, man, faith of the man healed and the faith of Peter himself. And a great miracle was performed. And we know that God is still in the process of performing miracles. He asks us to continue to grow in faith. Okay, so it says in verse 17, Now, brothers, Peter continues in the sermon, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders when you crucified Jesus, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ, or his Messiah, would suffer. So he tells them in verse 19, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. So just as he said in the uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter says a, a similar thing. Repent. Change your way of thinking. And accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Repent. Turn to God. You know, this is the same message that we've been given to preach today. When we encounter people who are struggling in their life, and they seem to have no hope, they're hopeless, uh, we have a message of salvation for them. We know how they can be helped, okay? We know that we have a Savior who is interested and involved in each of our lives, and He wants everybody to come to salvation. So our message is the same. Listen, you need to realize that you need a Savior. Ask Jesus Christ, Amen. and He will involve Himself in your life, and He'll be there to help you in any way you need help. So again, verse 19, repent then and turn to God. So if you repent and turn to God, three things are going to happen, Peter says. The first one is, your sins are going to be wiped out. 
No, you got to realize that you need a Savior, which means you got to realize that you're a sinner. That's the, the starting point. That's what it means to repent and to turn to God, to realize, you know what? I have basically screwed up my life. A lot of the problems I'm, blaze, I'm blaming other people for are really my fault. I've sinned. I've come short of what God expected of me, and uh, I need help. That's the starting point. And when you do that, when you ask God for help, when you ask Jesus to be your Savior, to let His sacrifice on the cross pertain to you personally, the first thing that happens is your sins are totally wiped out. Past, present, and future. Amen. And that leads to the second thing. After your sins are wiped out, times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Do you realize that ever since you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and had your sins forgiven, you and I are now living in times of refreshing? What does that mean? Well, last week we talked about the meaning of freedom. We talked about the freedom that we have in this country. And we also talked about our spiritual freedom. We're free in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, once we accept Jesus as our personal Savior, our sins are totally forgiven, our future is secure, eternal life with Him. God wants us to enjoy the freedom that we now have, freedom from the penalty of sin, free from uh, slavery to sin. He has rescued us from that. So He says, come out of your sin now, live who you truly are in Jesus Christ, a free man, a free woman, freed from all those things that have shackled us through the years. Now live your life loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. So that's what it means by times of refreshing. We have come to this point in our lives now where we're in an era that the Bible calls times of refreshing. Don't dwell on your sins. Don't labor under sins. Uh, we don't have to worry about not making it. We don't have to worry about falling short of God's expectations because our righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God says, enjoy these times. Use the freedom that you've been given now to live the life that God has intended you for, to live. Living a life of love toward God and love toward your fellow man. So the second thing that happens after our sins being forgiven, we enter into times of refreshing. And then finally, that God may send the Christ who has been appointed for you. So the third thing is the Father is going to send Jesus at the appointed time, and you're going to be there when it happens. Either you're still going to be alive or you're going to be resurrected from the dead. Amen. And Jesus is going to bring all of those with him when he comes. So all that happens once we repent and turn to God. So he gives them this admonition. Let's read on a little bit further. Verse 21. He, Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So what he does now, he's speaking to a Jewish audience to just kind of put the icing on the cake. He's going to talk about what some of the patriarchs said in the scripture, uh, attesting to Jesus Christ. He starts with Moses. For Moses said, 
the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to him. Listen to everything he tells you. So that he quotes Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. One of the last things Moses said, this great patriarch, before he died, he told the people of Israel, God is going to send a prophet after me. When he comes, listen to him. Listen to everything he says and obey him. Peter is saying, Jesus Christ, the one you killed and who God raised from the dead, he's the guy. He's the guy. So listen to Moses and what he told you. Seek Jesus Christ. Remember everything that he said, everything that he taught. So he goes on to say, verse 23, anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Then he goes on, verse 24, Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, okay, here's another of your great patriarchs. What did God say to Abraham? Through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. That's Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. This great promise that God made to Abraham millennia ago, through your offspring, through one of your descendants, all people on earth will be blessed. This is something that the Jews held in high esteem down through the centuries. What was said to their patriarch, Abraham. Peter is saying, okay, the offspring that Abraham was going to have, Jesus is the guy. Jesus is the one through whom God was going to bless the whole world. All people on earth are going to be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. And all you have to do is turn to either the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew or Luke, and it traces the descendancy from Abraham all the way down through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the one through whom the whole earth is going to be blessed. And how is the whole earth blessed by him? What he did on the cross. His sacrifice is for all people. So again, what Moses said pertained to Jesus of Nazareth. What Abraham was told pertains to Jesus of Nazareth. So turn, change your mind, repent, and turn to God and believe in his son. Verse 26, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And you know what? The gospel was to first go to the Jews, to Israel, the children of Israel. And even Jesus himself said that, Matthew 10, verse 5. When he was preaching, he said, Listen, I have been sent by the Father to preach this message to you, my fellow Jews, because you're the people of the old covenant you know, God has blessed you. You've been his people through the centuries. So I've come with a message of salvation now, and I'm preaching it to you first. And unfortunately, for the most part, the people of Israel rejected the gospel. And that's why it started to go toward the Gentiles. So all of this happened. The first miracle performed by the church after Jesus had departed the scene. A powerful miracle. Now, Satan is not content to let Jesus be exalted. So immediately, Satan gets involved and he stirs up the Sanhedrin 
to persecute the apostles for preaching this. So chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So here's Peter standing here with his guy still holding on to him who has been healed. And he's, you know, standing for the first time. Nobody can deny that this happened. So Peter and John are there. And here comes the Jewish leaders. You know, the Sanhedrin was the wealthy aristocrats of the Jewish people. Uh, they kind of had one foot in Judaism and one foot in the Roman Empire. So they didn't like what was being preached here because they felt that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah had already come uh, some decades ago before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. And they don't believe what Peter is preaching here because Peter's, Peter's talking about the resurrection from the dead and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. So the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So there's no stopping the church at this point in time. On Pentecost, there were 3,000 baptized, and now after this one miracle and Peter's sermon, another 2,000 are baptized. So you can imagine the apostles... They're, they're hard-pressed to just get all these people baptized. The people are lined up wanting to be baptized, wanting to turn to God and repenting of their sins. So it's tremendous. The apostles are hard-pressed to baptize all these people. And the Jewish officials are getting nervous because this is upsetting the status quo. They don't like what's happening here. They don't like what's being preached here. So they seized Peter and John, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Verse 4, but many who heard the message believed that the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power... Or what name do you do this? Now, Peter and John were rather nervous because they are now standing before some of the same men that Jesus himself stood before when he was arrested and just before he was beaten and tortured and crucified. So Peter and John, you can imagine how they felt. Is the same thing going to happen to us now? <laughs> you know, because of this one miracle and because of what we just preached, are these same men who condemned Jesus now going to condemn us? So I don't know about you, but I would have been thinking these things as this was happening. This has an eerie feeling to it because we're standing in the same place that Jesus himself stood facing the same accusers. And Jesus got a kangaroo court type of trial, and they condemned him even though he didn't do anything. Are now we going to face the same condemnation, and are they going to crucify us? 
So I don't know about you, but I would have been shaken in my boots. But you know what? There was something that Jesus had told the church. I want to turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 11. Luke 12 and verse 11. And we should remember this admonition too, because sometimes we find ourselves in similar situations. Luke 12 and verse 11. This is what Jesus warned the apostles before he departed. Luke 12, verse 11, he said this, when you are brought before synagogues, and this is exactly what is happening, but Jesus knew in advance that they were going to be persecuted, and he said, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And as we're going to see, that's exactly what happened. Now, there are times when we may be accused uh, of doing something. Uh, let me break this down into, into two, two choices. If you were accused of doing something that you really did, now I'm not talking here about preaching the gospel, but if you get yourself into trouble at school or at work, and you do some, something you shouldn't do, and you're brought into the uh, principal's office, and you are asked, <laughs> okay, did you do this? If you did it, you better fess up and tell them that you did it and suffer whatever penalty there's going to be because that's just what God expects of you. Don't lie to cover yourself. But if you didn't do it, if you're accused of something that you didn't do, yeah, you can go ahead and give an explanation and hopefully you're living the kind of lifestyle that you're not doing those, kind of those kinds of things. And hopefully you have a reputation where people kind of know in advance that you didn't do it. Maybe you were falsely accused by somebody else. Well, what you should do is pray about it, and God will give you the words to say. But here we find this particular situation where all Peter and John are doing is preaching the gospel. Okay? And they're accused of it. Well, let's read on. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the, with the Holy Spirit, verse 8. So sure enough, Jesus promised, when you're in this situation, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to say. And here is Peter facing these men who have the power to put him to death. The Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Well, keep in mind, Peter and John are not quote-unquote, educated men. They didn't go to the school of Pharisees and, and public speaking and all this kind of stuff. But here they are, under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit, speaking very clearly, rulers and elders of the people. They're respectful. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit is giving him some, uh, some boldness here because he's facing the men who caused Jesus to be crucified. And he is accusing them now. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, Jesus, 
is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. So he quotes a scripture here from Psalm 118, verse 22, which was a well-known saying in Jesus' time. In fact, there were times where Jesus quoted that scripture to apply about himself. You know, any builder, a mason of some sort, who's building a wall or building a building, looks at all of the pieces of stone he's going to work with. And if there's one that's inferior and one that's not going to give the proper appearance, he casts it aside. He's not going to use it. So Jesus said that he was the stone that the builders rejected. And that stone has now become the most important stone of the building. The capstone or the foundation stone, the cornerstone. So he says here, yeah, that's Jesus Christ. Salvation, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Especially for our day and age. Because if you say something like this today, people will accuse you of being politically incorrect. You know, how can you be so exclusive to other people? They've got their own religions. They believe in their God. They think that they're going to go to heaven or to some special place. How can you be so cold and so inconsiderate that you're saying that your religion is the only one? Well, I'm not going to make any excuses for God and for Jesus Christ. It is the only one. Jesus Christ said, I am the way. I am the way. He didn't say, I am one of many ways that you can get to my Father or you can get to heaven. He said, I am the way, the one and only way. If you want to get to my Father, there's no way to get there except through me. And he made no excuses for that. No excuses. So in our modern society today, people don't like to hear you say that, although it's true, and we should proclaim it. Jesus is the only way. There's no other religion. There's no other Savior. There's no group of laws that if you keep them well enough, somehow you're going to get to heaven. There's only one way. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, these men he was speaking to put their hope in the law. They felt that if you keep the law, you will be judged favorably and you'll make it to your final reward. So verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, dancing around, hopping around on his newfound legs, there's nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. So they had their own little meeting. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. 
But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus Christ. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, once again, here's the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Wow, that's boldness. That's putting your life on the line to speak the truth to somebody. It's more important for us to obey God rather than you. And these were the spiritual rulers of the land. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So just a powerful witness given through Peter and John through the backing of the Holy Spirit. So like I said, that should be our example. People should not have reasons to accuse us of doing wrong. Why? Because we're living in the times of refreshing. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Our, our future is secure. We're living as God's children, and we need to live in the reality of who we are. We don't have to worry about the things that most people worry about. We don't have to worry about God hating us or God refusing to uh, forgive us. We don't have to worry about having the right provisions to just get by on a day-to-day -day basis. We don't have to worry about the strength needed to live our daily lives. God's providing all of that for us. He says, you're living in this period now of, of freedom in Jesus Christ. Spend your time loving your God and loving your fellow man so that nobody should have any reason to accuse you of doing evil and bringing you before authorities. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. 1 Peter 2 and verse 12. We're told here, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You know, I'm, I'm happy to say that I've got a good driving record. You know, if you would have asked me when I was 18, 20, 21, <laughs> completely different answer. You know, I was out drag racing in the streets like an idiot, you know, almost killing myself on some occasions. But now at my age and my position, I'm very careful the way I drive. You know, I've got no reason to speed or do stupid things like that. So I know if for some reason a cop is going to pull me over, he's going to check my uh, license before he even gets out of the car, and he's going to know that I haven't gotten a ticket in 20 years. Okay, so when he comes to me, he, he kind of knows what to expect when I roll down the window and talk to him. That's the kind of lives that we're supposed to live. And I just use that as an example. You know, I fail in other ways, but our reputation. So that if there's any doubt as to, you know, something happened at work or something happened at school and 
Somebody starts thinking, well, did Mary do that? Uh, no, we know Mary. She's not that kind of a person, you see. She's a Christian after all. She's trying to do what's right. She's kind to people. She's patient with people. That's the kind of reputation that we should have so that, first of all, we're not accused in the first place. And even if we are, people are going to quickly know that we're not that, that kind of a person to do such things. First Peter 3, verse 16 says this. Just a page later, First Peter three sixteen, Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So you know what? People are going to say things about you. It's just going to happen. Jesus told us that we're going to be persecuted as Christians. But we better make sure that we give them no cause to do that. God is watching all the time. You know, people watch other people's lives on Facebook or whatever other social media they use. They want to keep in touch with what's happening in your life and what, what you're going through and where you're traveling and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? God is the chief one who keeps a watch on our lives. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. And he loves us in spite of it. But he says, listen, I have given you freedom in Jesus Christ. You're living in a time of refreshing now. Why? Because you turned to God and you repented of your sins and you now have Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you're never going to fall out of good favor with God. You're always in that relationship with Him. So he says, take that freedom, enjoy these times of refreshings, and live the kind of life now that I want you to live. Focus on your spiritual growth, growing closer to God on a daily basis. Don't worry about all this other stuff and make sure that you're always setting a good example. That people will look at your life and give glory to God. Not think of you as such a you know, big shot or you know, holier than thou person, but no, the glory goes to God. We're humble servants of him. So a wonderful miracle that God gave to the church to perform a powerful sermon as the early New Testament church started and a wonderful example for us to follow. Lord, thank you for this story that you recorded for us. Thank you for these men that you called, Peter and John, and the wonderful miracle that they performed, the great leaders in the church as they served. Help us to learn from their example, Lord, and follow in their footsteps and to be the kind of children of yours that you're proud of and that bring you joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.